We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. In the letter of 2 Corinthians, Paul writes to the church, he says in chapter 5, verse 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. And just before that, at the end of chapter 4, he says, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what, on, what, what is unseen, because what is seen is transient, but what is unseen is eternal. And it's basic to the Christian way of life, whether you've been walking with Jesus your whole life, or you're here and you're thinking about the claims of Jesus and Christianity for the first time or early on, uh, it is basic to the Christian life that we walk by faith. We're so good at walking by sight, all of us. This is the normal way that we walk in the world. We, ba- we make judgment based on what we see, and we live according to what we can touch and taste and feel, and it's a standard way of operating in the world. But as Christians, we're called to walk by faith, and it's a different way. We're going to continue this morning our series on the Psalms this summer called Psalms of Jesus. And we're going to explore this basic dimension of faith and walking by faith through the lens of Psalm 16, this Psalm of David. So I invite you to open up your Bibles to Psalm 16, and we'll look at this together as we think about what it means to walk by faith. And we'll make five points. The first two are about faith itself from this Psalm. And then the last three are about the fruits of faith as they're manifest in our lives. And then we'll do a little bit more after that to think about Jesus. These are Psalms of Jesus. Jesus is the great illustration of Psalm 16, as he is of all of the Psalms. So the first point comes out of verses 1 and 2, if you want to look with me at the text. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. This first point is that faith is exclusive dependence. In you I take refuge. The original meaning of this word here for refuge means uh, to hide oneself. And I I can imagine most of us have distinct memories of being children and playing hide and seek uh, in some way. And finding that perfect hiding place where you've entered into a closet or under a bed where you're just enveloped by the things around you and completely covered and protected from, from your friends or your brothers and sisters who are looking for you. And that's the kind of picture that we get here of, in you I take refuge. Psalm 32 mentions God is our hiding place. Taking refuge in the Lord himself. And this refuge we take is in God alone. Look at verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The point here is captured well by the Net Bible's translation, and this could go a number of ways from the Hebrew, but you are my only source of well-being. Which is to say this, in terms of thinking about walking by faith, we can have and even enjoy family, careers, sports teams, recreational activities, love of country as we celebrate the 4th of July this Tuesday. These are all good things. But however valuable they may be to us, In the life of faith, they can never become or share the ground of our being or the sense of well-being that we enjoy. That sense or that ground comes actually from God alone. I have no good 
David says, apart from you. When our kids were younger, we invested in some ladders for our third floor bedrooms so that just in case there was a fire our kids could have an escape out the windows we never did a great job practicing i'm not sure if this was just a placebo uh it was an expensive placebo i'll say that Uh, but these ladders were kind of escape routes out of the house and in many ways when we start to ground our being our sense of well-being on our career on our marriage on the success of our children, defined by whatever metric that we're using, on our health. We're using one of those escape ladders and putting some of our life and our sense of who we are on something other than God. And what David says in the opening lines is that faith is exclusive dependence. It is saying, I take refuge in you. You're my hiding place. I'm grounded in you. And in you alone, I have no good apart from you. We are so good at building escape ladders. I heard recently the testimony of a man in his 50s who said that he had come to know Jesus at a Billy Graham crusade when he was in his tween ages. And then basically from age 12 to age 45, everybody, he says, would have known that I was a Christian because I had a wife and five kids and we were active in our local church and I was active in ministry. But he said, truthfully, for those 33 years, I was pursuing whatever I could find for significance to be loved, and to fill the void that I had inside of me, and I became miserable. Which is to say that even if we're here and we profess to be a follower of Jesus, and this has defined our lives maybe in some ways, there's still room, isn't there? And we all know this, for us to have these escape ladders on which we're really grounding our sense of well-being. You might ask, well, how is it that we come to know that this kind of faith is ours in some way, that we actually are living a life of exclusive dependence upon the Lord. And I would say that the primary seasons of life when this becomes readily apparent is when we walk through trial or suffering of some kind. It's in suffering that the things that we don't want come into our lives or the things that we do want are taken away from us. And we are starting to wrestle with the reality of what is our life grounded upon. And this is central to the life of faith. Is it grounded upon God who doesn't change? Or is it grounded upon those things that can ebb and flow based upon whatever set of circumstances I may be in this week or next? Suffering has a way of loosening our grip on those escape ladders in our lives and tightening our grip when it's walked through faithfully, tightening our grip upon the Lord himself. 1 Peter 1 speaks about the trials that reveal the the tested genuineness of our faith to kind of point at this reality. Now, none of this means we're not called to wrestle. That's defining of the life of faith as we do wrestle. The Psalms would not be of any use to us if they weren't actually all about the wrestling of the people of God in the life of faith. But it does mean that as we wrestle, and God expects us to wrestle, and so if you're here wrestling with some circumstance in your life, then know that that's absolutely okay and a part of the life of faith. But as we wrestle, to wrestle faithfully with God at the center enables us to grow in that sense of our deep and only foundation for our sense of well-being as God himself and to loosen our grip on those other things. Maybe it enables us to be able to say in faith with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's a cry of faith. This kind of exclusive dependence 
This first point actually leads to the only petition in the psalm. And I shouldn't say it leads to it. It follows it because that petition is the very opening words of the psalm, which are, preserve me, O God. Preserve me, O God. This is the basic cry of one who walks by faith. Preserve me, O God. Or to put this into maybe more vernacular terms, God, I've put my life in your hands. I've entrusted all that I am to you. I belong to you. I've given myself to you. I need you. I'm counting on you. I want you to show up. I trust you. I belong to you. Lord, help. Lord, keep me. Lord, preserve me. That's the cry of David in this psalm. The world is often hard and we often feel the battle between light and darkness deep in our bones day after day, either because of things we're experiencing internally or because of things that are going on outside of us in our circumstances. We experience the constant drag and pull of skepticism and sin in our lives, the constant temptation to walk by sight and not by faith. And David cries, preserve me, oh God. Preserve me. God, we've seen your faithfulness in the sending of your son. We know that you are the God who can do everything, that nothing is impossible with you. Lord, preserve me in my life because you are my sole ground of being. You are the only source that things are okay in my life. Lord, preserve me. Is that our prayer? That is the prayer and the cry at the heart of the life of faith. So that's the first point. The second point comes also about faith. It kind of follows from this in verses 3 and 4 of the psalm. As the saints, for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. And there's a lot of questions about how to translate 3 and 4. The clarity comes at the end of verse 4. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take my name, their names on my lips, which is to say that this faith, which is exclusive dependence, always requires a no. Always requires a separation. When we have an exclusive dependence upon the Lord, there, there will follow a rejection of the things that God rejects in our lives. Things like sexual immorality, unforgiveness, dishonesty, greed, all of these escape ladders to ground our beings on something other than God himself. All of these must be rejected in the life of faith. And this is something of the utmost significance and seriousness. Too often in our world, there is a, a desire to say yes to God without having to say no to anything else. Uh, years ago, I listened to an address by Mike Ovey, who at the time was the principal of Oak Hill Theological College in London to a gathering of Christians in Nairobi, I was listening to this after the fact, where he essentially argued that much of the Western church is guilty of asking for God's blessing without repentance. In other words, we don't want to say no to anything in our lives. We just want God to bless us as we are, and we demand his blessing but ignore his call to repentance. The call, though, is always, isn't it? It's always repent, no, and believe, yes, with the yes of exclusive dependence, there's always the no of rejecting the things that God rejects. This is integral to what it means to live a life of faith. What is it perhaps in our own lives today as we think about them that God may be asking us to say no to once again? This is a regular moment-by-moment -moment exercise in our lives. Repentance is a lifestyle of a, of a follower of Jesus. 
But there may be habits or ways of thinking or secret little indulgences or idols of some kind that have crept into our hearts and our lives and our habits that need to be confessed and forsaken and let go of, said no to. So this exclusive dependence that says no to the things that God says no to, and this saying no, of course, is for our good, that our lives might flourish. God's no is always for the sake of flourishing and fullness of life. It's important that we hear that, especially if you're considering the Christian faith. There will be things you'll be asked to to give up, to let go of, but it's always for your good from our loving Father. That's the motivation. He longs for us to live. So these two points about faith then reveal three fruits of faith as the psalm continues, starting in verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The first fruit that we see of this life of faith is the fruit of contentment. When we take refuge exclusively in God, it doesn't mean that we mourn the things that we had to let go of. Rather, David erupts in celebrating the possession of God himself. He is on my side. He is my helper, he'll say in other psalms. In this psalm, my chosen portion and my cup. God is always the pearl of great price, and the wise person sells everything that he or she has and goes and buys that one pearl. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. The Old Testament scholar Robert Alter argues, and I I agree here, that the inheritance of verse 6, indeed I have a beautiful inheritance, and the possessions are not terrestrial, but rather are God himself. God is David's beautiful inheritance. God is our treasure. And this recognition is key to a deep soul contentment in present circumstances, whatever those circumstances may be. This is why, for example, as we read in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10, that the Christians joyfully accepted the plundering of their property since they knew that they themselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Having this absolute good, this better possession, we can be content in even the most challenging of circumstances in our lives. That is a possibility for us as we walk by faith and not by sight. There's more to this contentment than simply the reality that God is our portion. For in verse 5, David says, He holds our lot. You hold my lot. Which is to say that try as, as we may, and all of us try, we try very hard to control our circumstances and determine them. There is peace and contentment that comes from acknowledging that the God of the universe holds our lot sustains our fate or our destiny, it could be translated. He securely holds and directs that which we in ourselves are powerless to control. And we can affirm with the Apostle Paul that this one who holds our lot is working out all things for the good of those who love him. And we affirm that not by sight, but by faith. The question then for us is, what are we pushing back on that perhaps God has assigned to us in our lives, given us as our lot? Is there something in our present circumstances, a present assignment from God, a relationship or a lack of relationship that sours our perspective on how much we truly have in him as our beautiful inheritance? The psalm encourages us to a joyful perspective 
even in our present lives. Of course, having said that, I should always say that we can and should work for change in areas that are broken or that are misaligned with the will of God and his kingdom, especially as God is calling us onward to be conformed more and more to the image of his son and to work for justice and mercy in the world and in our lives. But these, these verses present a challenge for contentment with our lot, whatever that lot may be, because our portion and our inheritance in our life is God. And that is enough in every circumstance. You hold my lot. Do you know that this God in whom you take refuge holds your lot? The first fruit of this kind of exclusive dependence of faith is contentment. The second fruit in verses 7 and 8 is either, I would say, confidence in God or courage. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night also. My heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. When the psalmist says that he shall not be shaken, this isn't because he's so great, because he's King David, but rather because this God on whom his life depends is the creator of the universe, the one who sustains and preserves all things, the one who redeems, and the only one who never changes or leaves or forsakes us. And he's banking on this truth to ground him. And he's receiving this God's counsel and living in this God's presence. I have set the Lord always before me, Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Because of God being present with us, we are to fear no evil, as Psalm 23 says. There is to be courage and confidence that flows out of the life of faith because of who God is. And this kind of courage and confidence is not boastful and brash. It's not rooted in ourselves, but it's humble and strong, rooted in the Lord himself In fact, in verse 9, when David says that his flesh also dwells secure, the Hebrew root for the word for secure comes up, uh, means trust. This confidence comes from taking refuge and trusting in the one who who alone is trustworthy. From a poverty of spirit, acknowledging our own limitations. This is at the heart of faith and acknowledging the unlimited nature of God's power and knowledge and love and goodness and beauty and wonder. It's this God that David says, I have set before me. So to be faithful to this psalm, to fair to this text, the experience of this kind of courage and confidence in God himself arises out of the one who actually comes into proximity with his presence. What does David say in verse 8? I have set the Lord always before me. Which is to say that we cannot ignore God Or give God only token moments in our lives and expect this kind of courage and confidence to arise. James 4 verse 8 says that draw near to God and he will draw near to us or to you. Of course, God takes the initiative. God is the one who pierces into the darkness. God becomes flesh and dwells among us. God always is the one to initiate with his people. And yet in that initiation, he issues also an invitation to us to draw near to him. Psalm 16 often gets compared to Psalm 73. And I love the last verse of Psalm 73. The psalmist says, But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. Drawing near. There is this element of drawing near to the presence of the one who has already drawn near to you and to me that undergirds the second fruit of faith in this text, which is courage or confidence in the Lord. 
The third fruit in verses 9 through 11. So we've seen contentment and courage or confidence. The third one is joy and life and pleasure and gladness. These are wonderful words. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shale or let your Holy One see corruption. In my favorite verse, you make known to me the path of life. I should say my favorite verse in this psalm. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God, you are the source of joy, pleasure, life. And this is to mark the people of God. Jesus said, I say these things to you that my joy may be in you, that your joy might be full or complete. And the joy is not rooted in the circumstances. It's not rooted in the trials and the struggles and the challenges that we all go through in a broken world. It's not rooted in what we can see. It's not rooted in walking by sight. Too often our joy is connected to everything that we see in the metrics of the world around us. And the joy of the person of faith is a joy that's deeply rooted in what is unseen, yet deeply, eternally true. That God himself is our treasure and our reward. Now, you might hear all of this about the life of faith, exclusive dependence that says no, that produces contentment and courage and joy and life and pleasure from this psalm and go, this sounds great, but it doesn't sound like me. And I want you to know actually what this psalm portrays for us is beautifully unpacked, illustrated, set before us in the life of our King and Savior, Jesus. Talk about exclusive dependence. Well, Jesus' entire life and ministry was marked by dependence upon his Father. He said, I can do nothing of my own accord. But that dependence, that exclusive dependence, becomes most manifest at the cross, where every other thing, every escape ladder has been pulled away there's nothing left. Jesus is hanging naked on a Roman cross, perceived by all around him as a fraud and a failure. And what does he say in that moment? He quotes Psalm 31, verse 5, and he says, Lord, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What a beautiful end point for a life that had been lived, a life of deep communion with his Father, in which Jesus' life was grounded upon his Father's and his Father's alone. There's exclusive dependence. What about the no of faith? Well, Jesus didn't need repentance because he never sinned, but he did need to say no. And right after his baptism, when he's, the Spirit descends upon him and, and we hear that he is uh, the one with whom the Father is well pleased and he is his beloved Son, he goes, he's led by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And those temptations are beautifully summed up and summarized by Henry Nouwen in his little book, In the Name of Jesus, as the temptation to be relevant, the temptation to be powerful, and the temptation to be spectacular. And we all face those temptations. And what does Jesus do in each case? He says, no, no, no. And he reaffirms his exclusive dependence upon the Father. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. None of these other things. So Jesus models the no of a life of faith for us. And then we think about the fruits, these three fruits of contentment and courage and joy. And in the contentment dimension that enables him to embrace his lot, there's this wonderful moment in John 13. And I've pointed this out before, but where the gospel writer John points out in verse 3, Jesus, knowing that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. <laughs> 
What did he do when he rose from supper? He took a towel and wrapped it around his waist, and then he went and he washed the feet of his disciples, taking this place of a servant, which was merely an enacted parable of what he would do the next day on the cross for them and for you and for me, for everyone. He became a servant. Jesus, knowing that he had come from God and that he was about to return to God, he knew that his lot was held by God. And that knowledge of knowing that God was his beautiful inheritance enabled Jesus then to walk into whatever God had called him into, whatever the Father had asked of him, to walk into that with a contentment and a peace. And he does. He rose from supper. What about courage? Drawing near to the Father. So often in Jesus' life we see that he spends all night in prayer to his Father. Luke six twelve points this out. But another place of intense prayer where he's drawing near to God and modeling for us what it looks like to come near to the God of heaven and earth. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Well, how did Jesus live that out in Gethsemane? He falls on his face. He's sweating blood because it's so, the agony is so deep. And he cries out to his father in prayer. And out of that season of prayer, the disciples, their spirit was willing, but their flesh was weak. And we understand and identify with that. They were falling asleep, but Jesus was wrestling, drawing near to God in prayer. And when then Judas and the policemen and the officers of the, of the chief priests and the Pharisees approach Jesus in the garden, he stands up with courage and says, whom do you seek? You remember this? And they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And instead of hiding in the baggage like King Saul, Jesus says, I am he. And they draw back. The courage that comes from one who has set the Lord always before him. And because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. We see that modeled in our Lord in the life of faith that he models for us and leads for us. And the third, the third fruit of joy well, Jesus' ministry is about joy. But it's a wondrous thing that in the first ever Christian sermon on Pentecost, when the Spirit had fallen upon Peter and the other apostles, that Peter quotes verse 10. Well, he quotes verses 9, 10, and 11 when talking about the resurrection of Jesus. What David affirmed in hope in this psalm and Peter says that couldn't have applied to David because he was buried in the grave. But it applies to great David's greater son. You will not abandon my soul to shale or, yet, or let your Holy One see corruption. What David affirmed in hope has become an assured reality for us on this side of the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection shows us that death itself cannot bring an end to the presence of God in our lives, nor, to, nor an end to the joy that we have from his presence. It's the permanence of that presence that infuses Psalm 16 with its climactic crescendo at the end of life and joy and pleasure. And it's the resurrection of Jesus that is the fulfillment of this psalm, as Peter proclaims on Pentecost. God is everything that we've ever wanted. He is our portion. And the knowledge that nothing can separate us from him, even death itself, is the knowledge that then allows for there to be true and real and lasting joy. We take this by faith and not by sight. This lasting joy. 
So we see in Jesus the one who models the life of faith that the psalmist, that David writes about in Psalm 16. And I, I, I want to say this, the beauty of the gospel, because every single one of us doesn't measure up to this exclusive dependence and saying no and to the contentment and courage and joy that flow out of that life. All of us are a work in progress. All of us are, are there's so much room for us to repent and grow. But the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus had it all. He lived it all. He embodied this far greater than David ever did. And we are then invited by Jesus to draw near to him, to come into his life by faith. That's what it means as we walk by faith, to be hidden with Christ in God. That's what Paul says. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. The beauty of the Christian gospel is that we want to walk by faith, but we often fall short. But Jesus does this perfectly and beautifully. And God receives him and accepts him and raises him from the dead and then invites us into his life where we are now secure and at rest and at peace because we are in Christ and then invited as God's beloved children to grow from infancy to adulthood along this path of faith, that we would grow in our lives to be able to walk more and more by faith day by day by day, continuing to say no to the things God rejects and yes to the Lord himself, to draw near to him. So Jesus has done it, that we might enter in fullness into the life of this God. But then we are called to model Jesus, to model Psalm 16, and to walk into this ever more fully. This is what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. When David is being chosen and anointed as king, Samuel reminds Jesse, David's father, that the Lord does not judge as man judges, or the Lord does not see as man sees. Man, he says, looks on the outward appearance. He walks by sight, but the Lord looks upon the heart. He sees to the deeper places, and we've been invited not to walk by sight, but to walk by faith. Let me close with these words of Jesus, our King. This invitation, however you've heard these words today, I want you to hear this invitation at the end. From Matthew 11, Come to me, Jesus says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the invitation to each one of us from our Lord himself to walk into him more and more. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the invitation through your son to enter in more and more to this life of faith. Thank you that you are the ground of our well-being. God, thank you for the contentment and courage and joy that we can know as we walk by faith. For all the ways, Lord, that the world promises those things to us and that we believe and start to chase after, we ask that you would forgive us and that you would allow us to see through the lies to the truth that you are our beautiful inheritance, the source of all contentment all courage, all joy and life and pleasure. How we worship and praise you. 
In Jesus' name, amen.